0: ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Andrew McDermott. Today I'm speaking with philosopher Peter S. Williams about his recent book, An Informed Cosmos, Essays on Intelligent Design Theory. Based in Southampton, England, Williams is Assistant Professor in Communication and Worldviews at NLA University College, at Gimla in Norway. He speaks internationally on topics in philosophy, apologetics, and intelligent design. Peter, welcome to ID the Future. Uh, thank you
1: so much for having me. It's a, a, a delight to uh, join a show that I've been listening to for years.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, you've written several books throughout your career so far, and the latest happens to be uh, just published by Wiff & Stock this year. It's called An Informed Cosmos, Essays on Intelligent Design Theory. Now, obviously, this came up on our radar, and you got uh, some early interest from Stephen Meyer, and we'll talk about that shortly. Uh, Our very own philosopher of science, Stephen Meyer, wrote the foreword to your book, and so I'm really happy to have you on the podcast to talk about some of your book's insights. Let's start with your background, um, perhaps. In your book, you talk about coming from a theistic evolution mindset. Growing up, you and your parents were comfortable with both the orthodox scientific account of origins and a belief in a theistic God. Tell us about that.
1: Well, my parents were both Christians who met at teacher training college where they were training to be science teachers. Uh, back in the uh, very early 1970s, they uh, qualified and uh I came along fairly soon thereafter and so grew up in this uh, Christian home with two uh, science teachers uh, for parents. Uh, indeed, my uh, dad used to take uh, geology field trips out to uh, a little island just off the south coast of England called the Isle of Wight, uh, which is famous for its uh, Jurassic uh, coastline where you've got these sedimentary rocks that have um, been pushed up on, on onto the side, and you can kind of literally take a a walk back through, you know, millions of years of history, and it's the best place in Europe for finding dinosaur skeletons, and so on. So that was kind of the 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 milieu that that I uh, grew up in, as you say, uh, comfortable very much with the orthodox uh, scientific account of the, the age of the universe and the age of the earth and uh, evolutionary theory and so on, uh, but also uh, very comfortable with uh, believing that this world had been created by uh, the God of the Bible.
0: Yeah, and so comfortable, in fact, that you had a teddy bear named Dr. Branowski, did you not?
1: I, I did. Uh, uh, Branowski uh, was a scientist who did one of the very kind of early uh, um television documentaries in England that were uh, explaining science uh, for, the, for the layman, as it were. It was a kind of BBC version of uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, uh, if you okay. like. Uh, and um, Bronowski had this uh, show that the BBC did and then uh, a book of that show that my parents had and still have uh, to this day. Uh, and The book and the show were both called The Ascent of Man. And it kind of went through uh through uh history from a kind of scientific viewpoint, and yeah, as a kid, I had a little teddy bear uh red knitted teddy bear named after Dr Brodowski.
0: <laughs> okay well, so you grew up on a steady diet of popular science writers you you note in your book, including Paul Davies, Richard Dawkins, our great friend uh Sally Ferguson, Stephen Hawking, John Polkinghorn. What was it like to absorb the the thinking of these uh authors? And did it ever give you an awkward feeling when it came to your your uh, theistic belief or or did it seem to be one and the same or two separate things
1: I think when I was um, you know getting old enough to start getting into these popular science books in the kind of uh, in the 1980s basically uh, it seemed to me that uh, science was increasingly pointing in a kind of theistic friendly d- direction. Um, Big Bang theory had become kind of a standard orthodox science uh, by then, and that seemed to kind of raise questions uh, that uh, an, an, uh, the idea, the, you know, the ancient Greek idea of an infinitely old universe perhaps uh, avoided. Um, and scientists were starting to talk about the, the the fine-tuning of the cosmos and sort of rediscovering a, a design argument that had been displaced by Darwinism at the biological level, but then kind of rediscovered uh, in the broader framework of physical reality at this kind of cosmic uh, level. Uh, and so reading f- folks with different worldviews talking about these things as well. So, you know, Paul Davies coming at it uh, from a kind of agnostic worldview viewpoint, Richard Dawkins from an atheistic viewpoint, uh, someone like John Polkinghorne was a a Christian um, quantum physicist uh, termed uh, theologian. Uh, And so it was something that I picked up fairly early that different people's worldviews also kind of uh, affected how they interpreted the science, what kind of framing they they put on the science and the the science didn't kind of interpret itself, even though it was also something that could... Um, point you towards interpretations of reality science didn't get you the whole thing that there was this kind of philosophical uh, framework needed for science uh, understanding what science was doing understanding what science uh, kind of pointed to an interpretation of reality but that had to be kind of go hand in hand with, with this kind of deeper or broader kind of philosophical level of thinking as well and um perhaps not too surprisingly, I, I got into philosophy when I went off to university uh, eventually. And um, I, I think that kind of reading and interest in science and then the philosophy of science uh, kind of was something that I brought with me into my philosophical thinking.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> and it sounds like it was a valuable lesson to learn, you know, to understand the connection between the scientists and their work and then the worldview from which it emanated. Um, I'm sure that did you favours uh, later on. Well, uh, at what point did you uh, discover or become aware of intelligent design theory?
1: guess that would have been in the kind of mid to late 1990s, um, and I particularly became aware, first of all, of um, the argument about information in DNA, um reading uh, articles by folks like Nancy Piercy, I particularly remember uh, an article of hers on that issue. and then I'd uh, also started discovering some of the early articles of Stephen Mayer. Uh, and I was particularly interested at that stage on the philosophy of science question about uh, what is science and kind of questions of de- the so-called demarcation issue of can you demarcate a kind of a hard and fast line between what's science and what is not science what is say pseudoscience or what is philosophy rather than science and so on and so i was really getting into the whole discussion about what is science would intelligent design theory for example count as science or was the idea that it was science a kind of uh, a, a mislabelling and really it's some sort of form of philosophy or theology or whatever? And I came to think that these ID guys seem to have the the, the, the best of this argument about defining science and um, not defining science in a way that kind of prejudges what the conclusion of your investigation is going to be, having a so-called kind of open philosophy of, of science um, the, de- the whole debate about methodological naturalism was that a kind of a, a good part of one's definition of science or not uh, and I thought that probably not uh, and so that opened up for me then the question okay well if the ID folks have got their philosophy of science right <laughs> they, they're sensible on that, what other things might they be right about? And and so I I kind of came into the discussion through thinking about what really I would now view as a very kind of secondary issue uh, in in the discussion, the question of does intelligent designer theory reasonably count as a scientific uh, theory or approach? Uh, Nowadays, I would say, actually, the, the real germane question is not, how do you label this? What kind of discipline does this fall under? But is it true?
0: (laughs) Right? Well, I like how, as part of your argument, that intelligent design is a scientific pursuit, you parse out the difference between intelligent design and intelligent design theory. You give a simple definition for ID, the science of detecting design. I like that. And you remind us how that method is already being used in several different sciences. Can you explain how you separate out these two and why that's important?
1: Yeah, sure. So as, as you say, there's you've got the, the kind of science of how do we go about reasonably making inferences to design as the best explanation for some set of data that we have. And that's something that's done in lots of fields, uh, lots of disciplines, including scientific disciplines. Um Indeed, one of the chapters of the book is basically a paper that I published some years ago in a philosophy journal looking at this uh, question of how we go about making design inferences looking at, at William Dembski's work on specified complexity. But what I did was show uh, a number of examples of scholars who are, you know, atheistic scientists who disagree with intelligent design theory, but show that they either implicitly or indeed explicitly use specified complexity as a way of inferring des- to design. And then also showing a number of theistic evolutionists who, of course, disagree with intelligent design theory, but showing that they use specified complexity as a way of, of ruling in design. So that there, there, there seems to be this kind of general acceptance uh, either explicitly or at least implicitly, that that's a, a good way of going about detecting design and it's applied in all sorts of different scientific fields from you know um, forensic science or archaeology or uh, uh, forensic engineering or cryptology, cryptology or uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence um, and so on. And so there's actually kind of a common ground there. Where it gets controversial is when when you say, "What happens if we apply that scientific method outside of the social sciences, uh, or a- a outside of uh, disciplines like forensic science and so on, and apply it in biology or cosmology?" Uh, if we just take that that. Ag- agreed test and see is there data within the, uh, the realm of nature that we study in cosmology or biology or um, abiogenesis a or studies or what have you that would also pass through that same test. And then really you've got a very simple argument for intelligent design, which is saying, okay, first premise, we think we've got a, a, a reliable test for design. Second premise, we think we've got some data from within nature that passes that test. Well, if those premises are both true, then it immediately follows that nature gives you evidence of being designed in at least some instances. And the more and more that you think that happens, the more you think you can see that in the world around us, um, you get towards thinking, actually taking a design perspective perspective uh, on the world, and it leads to a kind of research program of of well, where, for example, do we draw the lines between, you know, the the kind of the different layers of reality, and where in that do we trace information, this kind of specified complexity? Can we parse kind of what the resources of nature can do without help from intelligence, or when we have to infer it? the kind of program that um, Michael B. talks about in trying to draw what he calls, you know, the, the edge of evolution and saying, okay, we maybe you might think that the, we have this kind of basic framework that the fine tuning of the cosmos points to of design. But within that framework, there, there are things that obviously, you know, processes that follow their own um, laws that we can describe scientifically and so on. Um, But there are things that those resources can achieve without additional input, clearly, Um, and some of that is described by standard Darwinian theory. But where uh, do we think we draw the line of what it can't achieve without uh, additional kind of intelligence helping it, as it were?
0: Right, yeah. Yeah. And I do appreciate you pointing out the importance of looking for that common ground. You know, we're already uh, we're already looking for design in these places. You know, let's apply the same principles and uh, explore it in yeah. other harder sciences. Something that many are reluctant to do, but I think yeah. that's changing.
1: That reluctance comes from philosophical uh, assumptions that that basically say, no, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to. To, to draw those kind of inferences or um, or indeed assume that the world can't be like that, so there's, there's no point in looking. Um, but, uh, you know, this kind of open approach to the philosophy of science is saying, well, let's not make up our minds in advance. Um, that's something that, um, you know, the young earth creationist position might be accused of doing. It starts with a particular reading of particular scriptures and then takes that as a kind of pair of glasses to go and and look at the world, just as much as a kind of hardline, philosophically Darwinian uh, approach to nature says you now uh, that 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 nature must be able to do all of its own creating. Uh, so you're there's no point in talking about uh, design. But actually, if you think you've got some some good tools for inferring design from data, and you just say well, maybe there's design out there to be detected. Maybe, maybe not. You know, how should we find out? Why don't we actually go and look at the evidence? (laughs) Right? That seems to be the more, I would say, kind of scientific uh, approach to the issue.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, your book introduced me to philosopher Mary Midgley. I had not uh, read any of her work before. One of the quotes you include stood out to me. She says, this whole reductive program... This mindless materialism, this belief in something called matter as the answer to all questions, is not really science at all. It is, and always has been, just an image, a myth, a vision, an enormous act of faith. And I thought that was beautifully put. In your book, you share quote after quote from materialist thinkers owning up to this very idea. Even Darwin, you point out, made the assumption that natural selection was limitless in its possibility. He says, what limit can be put to this power, acting during long ages, favouring the good and rejecting the bad? I can see no limit to this power. Where did he go wrong with his assumptions?
1: Well, uh, there in that quote, Darwin shifts from uh, saying he saw no limit to what uh, his uh, you know evolution by natural selection could accomplish uh, to saying that we should assume that there was... No limit. That's the kind of shift that he makes. And then he tries to put the burden of proof uh, on the person who doubts his theory, when actually what his theory there is based on is technically an argument from ignorance, saying, I don't see any reason why this isn't the case, that evolution can explain everything, and and then jumps to the conclusion that, well, therefore, we should assume that that it does... And the burden of proof is now on the person who wants to say no. There are things that it can't do. When, when actually, of course, his whole theory is 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 framed uh, as well as taking on the idea that things need design to explain them. And he says no, no, no. Evolution is by natural selection is a is a better uh, explanation of things than design. Well, how do we know that? Well, here's he, he describes the theory and then says, and I can't see any barrier to that process explaining everything? Well okay, but if you go from I don't see to let's assume that it is the case that's an argument from ignorance <laughs> right It's what, what uh, another way of putting it would be what some philosophers call, call a, a no seum inference. Uh, I don't see it, therefore it's not there And those are those are very dangerous because you know if you look in your bathroom and you say well I don't see an elephant in here, so there probably isn't one. Okay, then you're probably on quite safe ground. But if you look in your bathroom and you say, "I don't see any germs in here," then you're not on particularly safe ground, right? So uh, this is the the, the difficulty with uh, no-see-em uh, inferences. You now I can't see any anything preventing it. Well, you know, how much does Darwin at this stage, when he's writing this, right? How much does he know about what's got to be explained? Well, from a view over 150 years later, we would kind of say, good grief, there's an awful lot that Darwin didn't know about that his theory is supposed to to cover. He's assuming that it will cover. Uh, but actually, the more and more that, that scientists have learned about the, the huge, amazing integrated complexity of living systems, the less and less plausible that... uh uh, argument from ignorance, that no see uh, leap that Darwin makes uh, appears to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would say the same thing. Well, Dr. Stephen Meyer, as we said, wrote the foreword to your book, calling it as informed as it is timely. And what I really think works about your book is that it's this collection of essays you're giving readers uh, that shows a nice informed overview of the contemporary case for intelligent design. So it is a good place to start if you're just a beginner, or you're not convinced by uh, certain arguments you've seen thus far. Um, And even someone like me, you know, I've been working with the ID community for 12 years now. And even I was reminded anew of different things that certain people had said. And when you bring it all together, it really shows you uh, where Mm -hmm. you're headed and where you've come from uh, in a good way. Uh, How long did it take you to compile this book? And what do you hope readers will get out of it?
1: Well, um, it basically took a year uh, to produce the book. I've been doing a, a series of books with Whip from Stock that are uh, themed collections of essays on different topics, uh, and this is the the third book in, in the series. I did one called Apologetics in Three D, essays on apologetics and spirituality. I did one on uh, arguments for God uh, called A Universe and Some Someone. Uh, kind of uh, riffing off Lawrence Krauss's uh, book title there, but A Universe from Someone, Essays on Natural Theology, and then this one uh, is uh, an Informed Cosmos Essays on Intelligent Design Theory. Uh, I'm currently working on the the fourth and last book in that series, which will be a a, um, collection of essays on um, issues around the historical Jesus. Um, but, But I think it's nice to kind of lay that out because... You know, I've got a book on natural theology and I've got a book on intelligent design theory. And that's making it very clear, as I also make it clear in the book, that those are different subjects. Um, Intelligent design theory may be of interest to natural theology, just as other scientific theories might be, like um, Big Bang Cosmology or, um, you know, plenty of people are happy to talk about the fine-tuning of the universe as something that is discussed in in natural theology. Um, But they are, I think, distinct things. And uh, we earlier laid out the kind of premise-premise conclusion of the core argument for for ID. Uh, And the conclusion that you got to was there are things in nature that reliably signal intelligent design or allow us to infer to intelligence as the best explanation of them. But if you want to move from that conclusion to saying anything uh, that natural theology would find interesting, and anything that starts point, pointing you closer towards theism or saying you know God is part of that explanation, well, you need another premise in order to kind of bridge that gap. There's there's clearly a logical gap there that you you need a bridging premise along the lines of. You know, a theistic worldview would be the best explanation of this intelligence that we have spotted uh, at work in nature. Uh, And that, of course, will be a contested premise. There will be people with different worldviews who could accept the the core ID conclusion, but who would disagree with that bridging premise and, and say, no, I think I can accommodate this evidence for design within a naturalistic worldview or a pantheistic worldview or a, all sorts of other potential ways of explaining that that design. I mean, um, you know, Elon Musk is quite famous for, for um, spreading abroad the, the theory that, you know, we're all living in inside a computer simulation. Right. the, the, the Basically, we're all in the matrix. Um, which is uh, an argument that uh, a philosopher called Nick Bostrom uh, uh, first wrote a, a famous article about. Um, well, if that were true, that would be a kind of intelligent design theory, right? Um, but it, it could be framed in an entirely kind of naturalistic way. Uh, so, this kind of discussion about what what is the nature of intelligence. Uh, is is a, is a philosophical discussion, and as I kind of point out in the book, you know, okay, um, two forensic scientists might agree that you know the body that they have in the morgue is dead because it was murdered, <laughs> or two archaeologists might agree that the thing that they've dug up was deliberately shaped and, and, and like a an arrowhead. The chipping was not just through natural forces and erosion and things. Um, But one of those uh, scientists might be a a materialist in their worldview, a physicalist about people, think there's, there's nothing more to people than their brains. And the other scientist might be a substance dualist who thinks that the best way of understanding what human intelligence is is that they have immaterial souls, right? But they don't have to solve that philosophical debate between them, to allow them to agree that, yes, this was a murder or, yes, this was deliberately chipped to make an arrowhead. They can agree on the science and then go down the pub and have an argument about the philosophical interpretation of what's going on. And I think the same point applies to intelligent design theory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, finding that common ground, which uh, I think is the strength of your book. And before we, we get past that and just into our, our closing questions, I just want to, to bring out your premises for listeners one more time, just to, to give them this simplified argument about intelligent design that I think is useful. Premise one, there exists one or more reliable tests for detecting intelligent design. Then you move to premise two, nature exhibits empirical data that pass one or more tests for reliably detecting intelligent design. And then you have a core conclusion there. Therefore, at least one aspect of nature reliably signals intelligent design. And then you finish with this third premise, inferring intelligent design from empirical evidence using reliable tests is a scientific enterprise. So I just want to lay that out again and just just to be clear and give listeners um, a way to really think that through because as Dr. Meyer says in his foreword, it's deceptively simple but it is a good way to understand uh, what's happening here. Well, growing up with the writing of Richard Dawkins, you seem to have a special affinity for grappling with his arguments. And your book contains an appendix critiquing Richard Dawkins and Francis Collins as they had a friendly debate on Justin Brierley's show. What were some of the takeaways you you got from that?
1: Uh, Sure, yeah. I've I've really enjoyed interacting with Dawkins' work uh, over the years. Uh, indeed, um, over the, the COVID lockdown, I spent a long time uh, writing a book respond, responding to his uh, recent uh, book, Outgrowing God. And I wrote this book in a, in a dialogue form between uh, characters in a student reading group who are reading through his book. Uh, and that book actually has two chapters that really interact with Dawkins on the intelligent design uh, issue as well. Um, so I, I really find it fun to interact with Dawkins on, on this. Um, sometimes I really like the way that he kind of frame things. Uh, some things I agree with him about, for example, Dawkins would agree that intelligent design is a scientific theory. He just thinks that it's a false scientific theory, right? But he, he would agree with that premise three. Um, he said some complimentary things about um, the first premise about... Um, specify complexity uh, being a, a reasonable uh, criteria um, he just has kind of philosophical objections to uh, design as the kind of bigger interpretation uh, of of nature uh, uh, at large um, but yeah in that discussion um, Dawkins uh, he says for example that the, the the question about the where the laws of physics that allow life come from the kind of fine-tuning question is a, a profound question that he says he's getting close to a good argument <laughs> if that kind of if that were if there were an argument that would you know give him some doubts about his asia that that would that would be the kind of uh, argument um uh, that 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 he's kind of impressed by at that cosmological level. He's prepared to kind of entertain that more than he is at at the biological level. As I say, Dawkins has this kind of philosophical objections, really, to uh, inferring uh, design. Um, And he notoriously, he he complains that this uh, inference is to an additional complex entity that requires further explanation. Uh, well, okay. I- I- even if that were the case, you know, if you're, if you find, uh, you know, the first uh, astronauts who land on Mars to set up the Mars base there, and they stub their toe uh, against some pottery <laughs> lying there in the Martian sands, and they go, well, you know, obviously, you know, we haven't been here before. Um, this is obviously a pot. It's obviously the result of intelligence. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, that's just to infer to an additional complex entity. You, you can't do that. No, that, that opens up a whole interesting research programme, right, about uh, about that. Um, but when it comes to the larger kind of philosophical framing, he kind of misses uh, the idea that that God, if there is one, kind of wouldn't necessarily be in the same kind of category of contingent designers who are complex in the sense that they are composed of a number of different contingent parts arranged together in a certain way, uh, in an unlikely way. Right? Things that have that kind of specified complexity you have to infer design from. Um, And then you can ask, well who who is the designer and, and so on. And Dawkins has the idea that well eventually you need to have a kind of simple explanation. You can't just keep uh, a, 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 an infinite regress of designers. You know, some people might be happy with that. I would agree with Dawkins that I'm not comfortable with invoking an infinite regress. But his objection to, to, to the philosophical interpretation of saying, well, you know, maybe there's an intelligent designer who is not something that exhibits specified complexity, it is not contingent, Hey, that's beginning to sound a bit like people have always said God is, like an, a necessarily existent creator of the universe, right? An uncreated creator who's not a complex arrangement of parts uh, because uh, God's not a physical object and not contingent and, and so on. Um, and kind of Dawkins kind of can't quite grasp that idea and treats God as if if God were to exist, he would have to be exactly the same kind of contingent and complex object as would require one to infer design of it, Um, and that leads to an infinite regress, and that's no good, uh, and so that's his objection. But actually, he misses that if there were a God, he'd be exactly the kind of, in the philosophical sense, simple entity that Dawkins says he wants to arguments to go back to <laughs> uh, and so I just kind of find it fascinating how he kind of Dawkins' own argument kind of points <laughs> in in the direction from kind of intelligent design premises in a direction that natural theology <laughs> might find interesting and then kind of swerves at the last moment there uh, because it doesn't doesn't quite get the philosophical distinction. He, he kind of doesn't get the idea that there might be an intelligence that isn't something that exhibits specified complexity for the reason that it's not, there's no contingency
0: in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, good old Richard Dawkins. In the intelligent design community, we love Mr. Dawkins. Uh, we appreciate his, his uh, truthfulness, his honesty, uh, his willingness to go right to the heart of the the subject, and that 's as I said, Dr. Meyer has pointed out you know he just has this uncanny way to frame the debate um so we really appreciate him well um you assemble a nice list of resources at the end of your book. Why did you decide to include that and what what do you include in it for the for those who haven't seen it yet
1: well i I always include lots lots of resources. I, I, I love reading and researching widely for my books. I always have a lot of footnotes. I always have a big bibliography. But I, I always try and kind of separate out from uh, just the, the kind of reference bibliography, a recommended resources uh, kind of list and in various media as well. And I, you know, I, I run a website that... Um, will mention later. I'm sure that connects to things like I have a podcast, I have a YouTube channel, and, but the main thing that I do with my YouTube channel is to curate YouTube playlists on lots of different topics, uh, and so I I, I have uh, lots of references in the books to YouTube playlists, and I usually arrange those playlists uh, with you know short videos and longer videos as well. Uh, and uh, then I will reference, you know, podcasts my own, but other people' uh, podcasts like your own as well, uh, websites, uh, online articles that can be found. Um, I have a section of uh, peer-reviewed intelligent design articles that are listed in, in, in the uh, uh, recommended resources in this book, uh, and then books uh, as well. Uh, so I try and give a kind of spread. Of media um, of different lengths and kind of different um, difficulties uh, uh, as well. Kind of his introductory material, his kind of uh, sort of medium level difficulty material, as it were. And here's his the really kind of deep stuff uh, if you uh, really want to get into the kind of uh, mathematical formalism and and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, yeah. I noticed that the way you break it down for um, various levels of um those entering in, and uh, really appreciate that. Well, I think it's time to close this episode, Peter, but you are certainly welcome to come back on ID the Future and uh, share with us updates and, and more of your thoughts on intelligent design. We really appreciate your contribution, uh, and uh, like I said, you're welcome to come back. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, you can learn more about Peter's work at his website, peterswilliams.com, that's peters@williams.com and there you can get more information about his book an informed cosmos and get a copy of your of your own peter is the book available in digital or audiobook form it's
1: not available in audio uh, but it is available in digital form so you can get it as an ebook or download it on your kindle from amazon
0: okay great well peter again thank you for your time and as we sign off from uh, across the ocean, you in England and me in the United States, I really appreciate uh, your insight. Thank you. Well, for ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening.
1: Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute
0: and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.